Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi guys. Today's episode is a very special one as we take a look back at some of our favorite moments of the series so far. This first clip comes from one of our earliest episodes. Does it matter if you can't do maths? Rick was especially passionate about this one, and here you can hear us discussing whether gender can have an impact on your mathematical ability. Well, I think there are definitely differences in, in, in um, brains, and there's a difference between the way that women use their brain when they're doing maths and men when they're doing maths, for example. If you give the same problem to a man and to a woman, you'll find that in a male brain, the problem is solved in a very definite area of the brain. And actually, the cells around that area are inhibited. So they sort of close down in order to maximize, I suppose, the energy that goes into that part of the brain. If you give the same question to a woman, this is an Australian piece of research, same question to a woman, you'll find that actually not only does that part light up, but other parts of the brain light up as well, which only leads us to know that women are very good multitaskers, I suppose. Oh, well, right. This is pretty contentious. You don't say. (laughs) Yeah. And the history of sort of looking for gender differences in in brains isn't great because fundamentally there's been an absolute desperation on the part of male scientists to (laughs) uncover evidence of differences. But when you look back over that history, and they've really thrown everything at it, like everyone has tried every possible way of measuring differences. And a lot of it is uh, ironically sort of quite innumerate, like there's weak statistical power so people sort of claiming that they found stuff when actually the the evidence isn't really there yeah um not not good enough controls uh, misinterpretation of the data just a load of it is just rubbish but it's quite grabby so it gets reported by the press quite a lot yeah and it's just been sort of i guess like vigorously pursued across the ages and in spite of that no when when you look back at the stuff and you look at current research, there has been no conclusive findings. So no decisive sort of category-defining differences have been found. You can see that uh, there are differences as brain size increases with body size, and you can see that sometimes male brains are slightly bigger, but if you were to compare like a small-headed man with a large-headed woman, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Mm. Crucially, when you look at the brain of a child or like a, a baby, no difference. And what um, Gina Rippon, who who we, do you remember, we met years ago uh, at some science dinner. I, I was sat next to her and she was writing this book, which I think is called The Gendered Brain, where her, her whole thing is just trying to explode the myth uh, okay. of differences between male and female brains. Um, you weren't paying attention. I found it fascinating. Clearly not. So she, she's, done lo- she's done loads of research into this and she basically says it's a load of old rubbish. Right. And and she thinks that what is happening is 
that if you live in a gendered world, which we do, that produces gendered brains. So, so that's about, what I was going to say. It's about yeah. the environment. It's about how you learn it's maths, isn't it? And the, the expectations on you when you're learning maths, it, it, I bet. Exactly that, exactly that. And so because boys and girls are just brought up in different ways with different expectations, that is what is accounting for any differences that you do see. So there's nothing sort of innate or intrinsic about any differences. It's all to do with with, with the upbringing. Wow. Which is a really sobering thought. Yeah, yeah. This next one is from our episode, What's the Fastest We'll Ever Be Able to Travel?, where, as a physicist, I was in my element. We looked at the limitations of rockets, how technology could change the way we're exploring space, and, of course, we talked about warp drives. Here's a clip. And we're back. Uh, now, where were we? Oh, we're about to get quite science So I'm going to blow your mind. Okay. And, uh, I mean, so, so we want to be able to move faster than the speed of light. Yeah. I mean, that would be ideal for our, you know, can we, well, what's the fastest we can ever travel? Well, and, Yeah, and, and if you're going to get anywhere, like realistically, you're going to get yeah. anywhere interesting, you need to start picking up the pace. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so relativity tells us if you accelerate towards the speed of light, your mass increases, which makes it harder and harder for you to accelerate anymore. So as you approach the speed of light, you basically run out of energy. It takes an infinite amount of energy to go any faster. Yeah. And that's why you've got this limit. But that limit only applies to things with mass. Now, if you take the thing that we call space-time, so, you know, the the three dimensions of space we live in and the time, time. obviously, that we go through, Einstein put these together into this four-dimensional thing called Mm space-time, and this is what the universe is made of. And this doesn't have to obey that limit because it doesn't have mass. So basically what a warp drive does is you take something with mass, like me, and you cloak it inside a bubble of space-time, and then that space-time itself can move faster than the speed of light with you inside of it. So basically what you do is uh, you use energy, and this is uh, now we're getting into general relativity, Mm. you use energy to deform space-time. So everything that has mass or energy deforms space-time a little bit. So around the Earth, the gravitational field of the Earth is basically because the space and time around the Earth is deformed by the Earth's mass. That's what the gravitational field is. Yeah, so it's sort of like a, it looks like a well, if you like. Yeah, so so stuff sort of rolls. The classic is the the, sort of bowling ball on the trampoline, isn't it? And it sort of creates this deformation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we can do that just, you know, if we get a whole lump of energy or mass, we can deform the space-time behind us so that we actually stretch it out, which sort of pushes us forward. And we use the same kind of thing to deform the space time in front of us where we want to go yeah and you're trying to squash it so you can imagine like a, a slinky spring yeah sort of yeah 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 extends yeah, yeah. behind you and then contracts in front of you yeah and then a bit like watching um uh, like a leech move you yes know, yeah, of, yeah 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 that that same sort of compression and elongation yeah. and that basically so it's not strictly i mean i was sort of thinking about this it's not strictly within our definition of moving fast because what you're doing is moving the destination towards you mm. effectively but i'm gonna let that slide because uh, i sort of think it works yeah anyway. and, and the the upshot is that you end up at a place that is really far away yeah so in, you have in, in moved less time so i think it, i think fast. it works yeah 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 i um, it's maybe slightly i think you've got to allow it yeah um, yeah so, so has anyone designed anything that could do this yeah so um I mean, it, it, 
lots of science fiction writers have talked about this kind of thing because yeah. obviously ever since Einstein came up with it, people sort of said, oh, this, you know, what can we do that? But actually in 1994, a Mexican physicist called Miguel Albuquerque, mm -hmm. uh, he... Um, I think my accent there was more Italian than Mexican, maybe. I, I think the bigger problem was that's probably not his name, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said like uh, Alcubierre. Alcubierre. What did I say? Alcubierre? Yeah, I don't yeah, know what I mean. Yeah. It was, it, it, it sounded exotic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so this Mexican physicist yes. came up with <laughs> a, a, a way of doing faster than light travel. Or in the, he sort of showed how you could do it. So how you take the equations of general relativity and you impose a big sort of distortion through uh, mass or an energy. And that gives you the ability to kind of compress and extend uh, space-time to give you that kind of fast movement th through the universe inside this little bubble mm. of space-time mm. that, that you're in. But is it in any way practical? Like, is, is it something that someone could look at and go, okay, yeah, I've got an idea how to build that? Yeah, I'm... Uh, it's tricky. It's a no, isn't it? Yeah, it's a no. Um, so this is, obviously, this is theoretical physicists dicking about with like yeah. ideas on blackboards, effectively. Yeah. Uh, one of the issues with, with uh, the Mexican guy's uh, scheme was that you need uh, negative energy. So if you want to go faster than light, which you can do in theory, mm -hmm. uh, you need something called negative energy to distort the space and time in the way that it needs to be distorted to make that happen. What's negative energy? Uh, Nobody really knows. I mean, it's sort of a mathematical idea rather than a physical thing. So nobody's ever seen negative energy. We don't know how to create it. Um, but mm. what happens is space-time is like rubber. So so it's like it's got this tension, like mm -hmm. a stretching elastic band. So if you want to stretch it, you have to put sort of energy in like you have to normally do it. But in the way it works, you have to put this negative amount of energy in. So it's so almost it like compressing it. it. But no, no, to compress and contract and extend it oh, to just do, oh, still right. requires this negative right. energy. So it's a, right. it's a problem, right? Yeah. Engineering-wise, that's quite tricky. So, so, so without negative energy, this is a non-starter. I mean, is mm. is anyone? I mean, is anyone looking at negative energy and thinking, well, maybe we can create this somehow? Yes, they are. They weren't until recently, but literally in the last couple of years, there's been three or four papers come out that have actually shown new ways to sort of maybe get around the problem slightly. So this is what I asked Sabine to talk me through. I should probably first clarify that it's still a really, really small group of people who's working on this. Like if you look at the grand uh, scheme of things, uh, you know, it's maybe one or two dozen people and they don't work on it full time because there aren't really any research programs. So it's, it's a really new thing. And my understanding at the moment is that this issue with the negative energies is still there. And I don't think anyone has a solution to it. But that's only for what faster than light warp drives are concerned. If you're fine staying below the speed of light, you don't necessarily have this problem. And now some people may find this a little bit disappointing. You know, what's a warp drive if you can't go faster than the speed of light? On the other side, if you think about the problem that you started from, um, you know, how can we go beyond the current propulsion mechanisms uh, of spaceship rockets that we have today, then if you could at least get up to the speed of light, that would be pretty cool already. Up next, Rick's getting heated about the animal kingdom as we answered, which endangered animals do we choose to save? With the help of the brilliant Rebecca Nesbitt. 
We talked about how colonial attitudes are affecting local communities, whether animals going extinct is a fact of life, and a whole load more. Here's a clip. All right, so if in general the animals we're saving are just the likable ones, yeah. uh, who's deciding which is the most likable? Yeah, I asked Rebecca this. Who decides in conservation really needs to be reconsidered because currently there's a few people often running wildlife conservation charities and then donors, sometimes the large donors, guiding this agenda. But there's a very colonial attitude and I think we do need to have mechanisms for more voices to be heard. There have been some changes, not enough, but they are continuing in... Um, parts of Africa, for example, there's a move to involve more communities in decisions about conservation. But they tend to be within very narrow parameters. Uh, and New Zealand is another example that there's now increasing recognition of the important role that Maori play in conservation. But when Maori are being asked to draw up conservation plans, for example, they're still approved by the New Zealand Department of Conservation. Western law still seems to sit above them. So we're working on this, but we really haven't reached the end point yet. So basically, the West is um, dictating the global vision of what's important and what's not. Yeah, which animals to save, how to save them. And and that, that that is really important, I think, because, you know, who decides... You don't. You don't really want a situation where it's just a few a few people running big conservation charities. It doesn't doesn't even make any scientific sense. I don't think. And the fact that it is by and large rich Westerners, yeah, guiding the path and imposing their vision on... because they're, those animals are not in the West, are they? They're not. No, no, they're not. You know, they're in Africa, and I, and I, Asia, Australia, yeah, South America, I guess. Sort of, and it's it's quite easy to see why the global South, on the whole, does not have a good relationship with conservation programs. Yeah, because they're just imposed on them, and often without much thought given to how that's going to impact the the human population, and and so it is. It's this sort of quite colonial attitude. And, and and totally also, to, we'll come on to this actually, totally ignoring the fact that a lot of sort of indigenous peoples living in in, in forests and, 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 and ecosystems that we're talking about, they have this really rich knowledge about sustainability that we just aren't mining and not taking advantage of. Yeah. Just sort of coming in and going, no, no, you well, you're going to have to move out of here now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and we're going to take and, over yeah, and, we're, and look we're after gonna, this properly. We're going to take over. And and again, that is something else. Uh, we're, sorry, I thought I was finished with being wound up, <laughs> but I'm not because we are obsessed with protected areas. So protected areas are essentially just places where you go, okay, we're putting a fence around this, metaphorical or, or, or literal, yeah. and uh, any people are in here, out, and we're just going to leave it. And that's job done. And so I think... This month, I think, yeah, conservation leaders are meeting in in China from around the world, and I think they're going to agree this. We want thirty percent of the Earth's surface to be protected by twenty thirty. Whatever, okay. that's the target. And you're like, well, that sounds good, but when people actually look at protected areas, they're like, well, you're not doing anything in them. 
You're just sort of leaving them. And like, like that's job done. And it isn't. And, and they're, not, they're not effective. Right. It's just sort of... So it, it sounds again, like you're doing something great. It sounds like you're doing something fantastic. And actually, you're not. And so when you look at... Um, people have looked at... Restricted to sort of wetlands and, um, and birds, actually water birds. So you've got to be slightly careful about how much you extrapolate. But when you look at the, the populations of, of water birds in these protected areas versus the same species in unprotected areas, it's no difference. Doesn't okay. doesn't have doesn't have an impact. You're like, well, so what are we doing? Is that because like, they fly over the fence? Yeah, well, presumably it's slightly harder to keep them in there. But <laughs> it, it it's just not being thought through. It just feels like it's a good it's just a good thing to say. Yeah. So things get agreed at like, you know, you have some summit, you know, yeah. they sit around at the table in the in the business suits and say, yeah. this is what we'll do. Thirty percent by twenty thirty sounds good. Yeah tell somebody to go off and make that happen. Yeah. And nobody's actually looking at whether that's really yeah, and you go, oh, oh, is impactful. That, is that actively benefiting the wildlife? Don't know. Yeah. Um, and then when you look Brilliant. at it, no, probably not. Brilliant. Not, not that it's, it's not bad for it, but it's not particularly doing anything to, yeah. you know, to like grow populations that are in, in, in decline, for example. Yeah, okay. What a load of bollocks. Everywhere you look in conservation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now it's time for one of my all-time favourites from our episode In an Age of Science, Why Do People Believe in Ghosts? We were joined by Professor Chris French to uncover the evolutionary advantages of getting spooked, whether science will ever stop people from believing in the supernatural, and why haunted houses feel so creepy. Turn the lights on. Stand in front of the mirror and repeat after me. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. With those words, many of us have our first experience with a ghost. Or not. We all know someone who is convinced that ghosts exist. Old, troubled souls lingering in the corners of pubs. Poltergeists running through households wreaking havoc. Or old sailors roaming the sea on terrifying haunted ships. They make their way into timeless stories that we hear again and again. And if you believe the dead can return to contact or haunt the living, you are not alone. It's an inevitable part of human life to be curious about what comes next, and ghosts have become a recurring theme when we think about the possibility of life after death. The ancient cultures of Egypt, Greece, Rome, China, India and the Celts all feature ghosts and spirits. But is there actually any proof that they exist? And if there isn't, how can we explain those spine-tingling experiences? That's why this week we're asking, in the age of science, why do people still believe in ghosts? <laughs> what is, is that? Oh, that's amazing. I've just read the... Um, yeah. 
that's Michael doing um, just, a, just a note Sc- from Katie, our producer, saying... Scary, scary noise. Do some evil laughs and screams to go on. Uh, I, I can't scream like that, can I? Yeah, uh, I don't know. Of course you can. Go on. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and now do an evil laugh. <laughs> more, more evil, please. More evil. Ooh. More evil. <laughs> I can't do that. And, and could you do? Um, you've just been molested by a ghost. Uh, so scream appropriately by, by Satan himself. You, you've been molested by Satan. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 Satan's a big boy. Oh. Ah. I mean, this, <laughs> this is... You're enjoying this? Is, is, is this doing yeah, I mean, you after admitting that I'm a real doctor? Yeah. Finally, yeah, you're getting your own back it, yeah. now. <laughs> well, there we go. That's Lovely. Dr. Michael Brooks. <laughs> uh, Available for auditions. Quantum physics. <laughs> so as ever, we've recruited an expert to help us answer today's question. We're going to be speaking with Professor Chris French, Excellent. who's a professor of psychology at Goldsmiths University of London. His next book is going to be called The Science of Weird Shit. And that <laughs> focuses, which is a great title, yeah, yeah. Uh, focuses on anomalistic psychology, which is essentially the science of weird experiences and beliefs. Um, and I genuinely was excited to speak to Professor Chris because his work is just, it's all about trying to explain extraordinary phenomena but in like with a scientific approach like goes in with an open mind yeah he's not trying to debunk stuff really he's just trying to explain what is going on yeah because in most cases something is going on it's just probably not a ghost (laughs) perfect spoiler (laughs) (laughs) so we started off things quite simply with chris just by saying to him what is a ghost What a ghost is, basically, um, I think the most standard definition would be the idea that when people die, some aspect of them, call it their soul or their spirit or whatever you want to call it, actually may remain on the earthly plane and still interact with the living. So some people would make distinctions between different types of ghosts, in particular Lots of paranormalists would make a distinction between those that can actually interact with the living as opposed to another type, which is more or less just like a kind of video replay of some event, but without actually any interaction. And I suppose also we should point out that some ghosts are referred to as poltergeists. These are the ones that cause lots and lots of destruction, be it kind of throwing objects around, uh, starting fires, interfering with electrical equipment and so on and so forth. I think you get a little bit too kind of uh, bogged down with these different distinctions. Basically, ghosts are the spirits of dead people. Yeah, the spirits of dead people somehow still interacting with the living world. Especially if they're poltergeists. Yeah, so poltergeists are the cheeky ones. <laughs> Little but bastards. I, I like to imagine that if I'm coming back, I'm coming back as a poltergeist. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I'd be quite a good yeah, poltergeist. Yeah, I mean, but you'd, be, I you'd think, just be a bog standard No, ghost. I think everyone wants to come back as a poltergeist, don't they? You just yeah, no, mess, I, I, mean, I agree. I'm just saying I would, and I don't think yeah, you would. I think I would. I would. But, I mean, coming, you, oh, no. God, what what do you think I'm coming back as? You're a square. Oh, do me a favour. Really? I'd be far more inventive as a poltergeist than you would. No, no. I don't think you've got a you haven't got the naughty streak you didn't get in trouble at school did you 
No, I didn't. There you go. No, no, you're right. Maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe you're I won't. Just a bog standard. I'm, just, I'm like not white, even going to bother a, coming back. You're to a be white sheet job. <laughs> Boring old white sheet job. I'll tell you who will be back as a poltergeist. Go on, Shane Warne. Yes, and you'd be pl- you'd be so delighted. I mean, he'd, he'd come up with some great shit, wouldn't he? To be haunted by Shane Warne. Yeah, what an honour that would be. Quite a good film. In that as well, potentially. Yeah, yeah. actually, um, yeah. Let's not talk about that anymore. No, no let's doubt. just make some yeah. notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any other? I'm now trying to think of other people. Interesting question. What would the or is the Duke of Edinburgh coming back as? Yeah, assuming he's coming back. Scary. I mean, it was pretty scary yeah. when he was alive. Yeah. Wasn't he? I don't think. I mean, honestly, in the last few, with obviously huge respect. The last few sort of months, years of his life, that guy looked like the living dead. <laughs> like he, he looks, he actually looked worse than a you corpse. Know, you know how you get some of those ghosts in the stories are like high women driving along, like you know, like a horse and carriage and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, bet yeah. That he would come back as a, just a guy who appears on the A twenty seven in a Range Rover, just like in the dead of night, he's just driving down a yeah. ghost Range Rover, careering into like, innocent yeah, ladies. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I quite like that. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. But unfortunately, we never hear about, you know, the recently deceased coming back as ghosts, do we? Nobody ever says, oh, yeah, that guy who died last year is now haunting my flat, really. Well, I mean, I suppose Millie's like care yeah, house thing yeah, I might think be that, Yeah, Millie is saying that is what's happening. But you think there'd be a, a bit more of that, wouldn't you, of like celebs coming back? The interesting thing is that sort of in the past, all of the famous ghosts were already famous people. When they were, pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. Yeah, which is odd because it sort of suggests there was loads of other ghosts knocking around as well, but no one cared because they weren't celebs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody even talked about them. Well, they yeah. didn't have PR, did they? So I guess that was you know. Yeah, because I guess that's the ideal thing if you're a celeb and you die at the same time as your yeah, yeah, or you carry on the just carry like on the great work yeah, <laughs> in the spectral plane. <laughs> but it's genuinely interesting when you look at ghosts sort of through the ages because all cultures throughout time pretty much have had some sort of ghosts or spiritual component to their lives or they've definitely thought that they had and you could look at that i suppose as a suggestion that there's something in it that's not how i would look at it (laughs) i'm looking at you blank very it's very consistent yeah although what is not consistent is what those ghosts are like so what ghosts appear to be is more like a sort of reflection of the society that is talking about them, which is what you'd expect, probably. Um, Contemporary ghosts are quite, basically quite sort of credible, sort of quite believable. Right. Um, In what what sense? Well, so back in the day, ghosts would be like sort of, like they have like hideous, like bleeding hands, like luminous skulls Oh, right, yeah. Or be carrying their heads like by the side of their... really sort of like terrifying and, and not what sort of, human-ish yeah whereas modern ghosts are a bit more like they are just sort of like people <laughs> it's like people <laughs> hanging around and you've seen lots of these kind of changes and they seem to reflect yeah what's going on in in the society at any given time like for example ghosts in the 14th and 15th century were thought to be occupying purgatory yeah and then in the reformation uh, purgatory, which is quite funny, it just sort of got abolished. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. people are like, oh, they obviously can't be there anymore. But it sort of stuck around as an idea. And then in, in the Enlightenment, ghosts went slightly out of fashion because people were sort of, you know, really embracing science more. Yeah. Although the kind of romantic poets, I think, were around a similar time and they kind of kept going with it. But yeah, fun- fundamentally, ghosts are a sort of reflection of 
what's going on at any given time in any given society or culture. So they're quite fluid. Right. Um, and it, and if you sort of took a time slice and then looked at different parts of the world, the ghosts are going to share characteristics, but are going to be spoken about quite differently, and their appearance is going to be quite different. So it, it's not it's not hugely supportive of the idea of uh, ghosts. Of being, you being like stripped of all your like life stuff, and basically you know reduced just just to your spirit essence. Not, you seem to retain an awful lot of basically what you had when you were alive. Yes. This final clip is for anyone who's ever struggled to get to sleep. We asked one of the world's leading sleep experts, Dr. Maya Shadell, how can I get myself to sleep? We talked about how technology is affecting our sleep and whether hormone supplements can help us out. Here's Dr. Maya telling us about some of her more amusing research around orgasms. <laughs> we, did, we did ask uh, Dr. Maya about one uh, very interesting piece of research. There was a study back in 2019 that looked at this, although having said that, it was a self-report study. So this is not something that's been measured in the lab from what I can see, although I might have missed one. But generally, people do report that they sleep better and they fall asleep quicker if they have either masturbated or they have had sex that's led to orgasm. And the orgasm is the important part, apparently, for both partners. So... Generally, sleep gets better if both partners have orgasm. That's definitely something that came out of that study. And masturbation was also uh, seen to be helpful as well. It's not something that we prescribe, but we definitely do talk to people when they ask us, you know, and they say that actually I feel really relaxed after I have sex. That really helps. Then, of course, that's going to help. There is also, we think there might be something to do with the fact that, you know, during sex, your heart rate is accelerate, is, is up. And as, as soon as you stop having sex, you have this kind of really quick deceleration of your heart rate. And that's likely to be helpful. Uh, it also is uh, likely to be helpful because of your muscles relaxing afterwards, which again, which is what we need. But I imagine that there's something that's a bit more difficult to measure, which might be about the psychological impact of sex, which is about often people feel closer together. They feel uh, that they have connected with someone. And I imagine that that feeling in itself is likely to contribute to why people find that they fall asleep quicker um, and that they have a better sleep, that they might just be feeling generally more relaxed and happy in themselves and in their relationship. (laughs) So, uh, <laughs> so, so, so you've been married. To unpick here. You've been you've been married a few years now, Rick. Is there is there everything all right? You know. Well, the 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 key thing here is, of course, I am living up in Manchester during the week on my own. Um, so the only conclusion is, I am going to be wanking myself silly <laughs> every night. <laughs> In, in in the name of science, strangely, lube sales in Manchester have gone through the yeah. roof. When um, yeah, when Doctor Meyer said we don't prescribe it, all I heard was that is what I'm prescribing. <laughs> uh, but it's sort of like it makes sense because anecdotally, like the cliche is when men have sex, yeah, as soon and then as they, they just start snoring. They, finish, they, yeah. they they roll over and they go to sleep. Yeah, um, obviously not in I mean, uh, not in our case. Uh, no, I think I think I think I might do, but, um, but there's not when these these studies that have looked at it 
there's actually not a there's not a gender difference. So oh. I think so. My take on this is probably I mean it's awful. It's probably just that <laughs> when men have sex, almost every time they will orgasm, and that's not the case for women. Oh I think yes, that that would probably that does make sense actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, but ultimately, it is the, it's the orgasm that is key. It doesn't really matter how whether, you get there. The, how, how you get there. Um, so good to so, know. So yeah, it's no, it's very interesting for me to know that actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's some, there's some other. I'm going I'm to text you at five to eight and just put you off every night. <laughs> oh, don't do that. <laughs> text me a photo of your horrible face. <laughs> But yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I'll definitely um well I'll look into it, won't I? There's some there's some other quite funny studies around uh, uh your sleeping companions. I think this is self-reported. So you know, self-reported stuff you always have to you bear in mind it's not as rigorous as it might yeah, be. Yeah, people can brag. Yeah, people people can brag, people can sort of say what they think you want to hear, right kind of stuff. Yeah. But anyway, they spoke to I think it was nearly a thousand women. Um, and and it turns out that their preferred bedfellow would be a dog. So they feel like a <laughs> wow. dog is a better sort of sleeping companion than a man. <laughs> I reckon it's because dogs are just sort of they they'll sleep when 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 you sleep. They're not gonna they're not gonna be keeping different hours to you particularly. If, yeah. if you're going to sleep, then then the dog is happy to do that. Whereas if if you think about a, like your human partner, they might get to bed late than you. They might be getting up earlier than you. So it's just a bit more disruptive. They might be thrashing around more, snoring louder, uh, snoring louder. Although I think dogs probably snore. They as well. do a little bit, but um, not not like not like I can. No, sure, uh, cats also not as good. Uh, so it's definitely dogs. So dogs are the preferred. Uh, sleep companion. I wonder for, if there's an element of feeling safe and protected as well. Possibly. Because you're not going to get that from a cow. Are you? Not really. Burger so comes you, in, the cat's just like, I'm out. Yeah. Well, no, the cats are not doing anything. The cat's just sort of <laughs> sitting there and watching. It's not even, <laughs> it's not even vaguely phased. Like, well, you're not, I don't have any belongings, so take what you want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. If he, if he, actually, if he takes my food bowl, there's going to be trouble. But apart from that. Thanks for joining me on today's episode. You can find the full episodes on the Eureka feed. You can also get in touch with the show on Twitter at EurekaPod. Be back with you next week. Eureka is a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creator Network.